Can you please pray with me now as we prepare to hear God's word? Our Father in heaven, you have determined that it is through the preaching of your word that your church is built. And it is with shaking and with fear and joyful expectation that we now open your word. I pray that you would use this message to build up your church and to convert and save your lost sinners and bring them into your fold even now. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. I've had experience packing recently. Perhaps you have as well. Summer is the time of vacations after all. And when you're packing for a trip, there are various types of people that you will encounter. Various philosophies for how you put it all together in your bag. The first type of packer I will title, no offense if you are this type of packer, but I will title this, this packer the Type A Psycho Packer. Uh, it's a month out from the trip. They've already got their Excel spreadsheet all worked out. Uh, the amount of socks needed for the trip has been calculated exactly down to the very hour of the vacation. Weeks ahead of time, they've already begun to wash their clothes and neatly roll them in a bundle because that's what professional packers do. And they, of course, place them in their bag long before the trip begins. Meanwhile, the rest of us are saying, man, can't you live on the edge a little bit? Because there's another kind of packer. This is the night before packer. Uh, The majority of you, actually, the night before packer. You, You honestly don't have enough clothes to last you two days. So you need to wait the night before because uh, you don't have enough socks. So you are the night before packer. And, and this type of packer actually bleeds into another kind of packer who, who is very similar to the night before packer, actually. They, they, the lines blur very quickly here. Uh, this is the worst-case scenario packer. Um, you'll never know what you'll need, you say to yourself. I mean, I remember last summer we were driving through the Rockies, and it was really cold in July. I better pack my mittens on this trip to Santa Barbara. I don't know. It could be cold. So you just load up your bag with everything that you think you might need. Twice as many socks, twice as many shirts. You never know. Uh, the bags, of course, quickly balloon out of control. You need a U-Haul or a, or a small Sherpa to carry it around with you wherever you go. Uh, but then on the flip side, there's another kind of packer. I would refer to this kind of packer as the economy packer. Um, if, if, if packing was to be compared to an airline, this is the spirit of packing, of the packing industry. Their goal every year is to see if they can bring just a little bit less on the family vacation. Let's say I, I brought three pairs of underwear last year, but I bet you I can do it with two. Just flip it, flip it inside out halfway through and I'll be good. Of course, the bucket list of this particular packer is to eventually a reach Uh, that point in packing where they can carry everything they need in a simple Ziploc bag and they will need nothing else. Trust me, in youth ministry, actually, I see all sorts of packing styles um, for sure. The the worst-case scenario packer is by far the favorite that I see. Um, And I do provide them a packing list, but I still see all types regardless. Um, Now, um, regardless of what kind of packer you are, I want to take some time this morning to remind you of a certain renegade item that will always make its way into your bag, whether you like it or not. It always sneaks in, even though you didn't even know it was in there in the first place. It will... Go with you wherever you go in this life. It will join itself to every activity of your life. 
whoever you are, remember, remember today, you will bring this with you wherever you go. You will bring it with you into your marriage. You will bring it with you into every relationship you have. You will bring it into every aspect of your life, even all sorts of good things that you had good plans for, prayers for. You will bring it into even this new building with you. Remember this. Wherever you go, sin will sneak along with you. It will sneak its way into your luggage and come with you wherever you go in this life. Regardless of how much control you think you have over your life. Regardless of how excellent the things that you do seem to be. Regardless of whether the thing you are doing is actually a blessing from God. Like a marriage. Or like going to summer camp. Or like serving in children's ministry. Or like joining a new church family. Your sin will follow you there. It will go with you. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings. The title Genesis actually comes from the Greek translation of the book, but the Hebrews would have referred to it as just in the beginning. Their inspiration for titles was just the first few words. Now, we're at Genesis 11, but it would do us well to consider where Genesis sits. Before this point, we've seen the origin story for everything. We've seen how the world and the cosmos came to be. We see how the land and the sea came to be. We, we have seen how the animal kingdom has come to be. We've seen how mankind came to be and, and the kind of people we are. And we've also seen in Genesis 3 the beginning of sin itself and how sin came to be. And we, we understand ourselves according to the way the book of Genesis describes us. After this event in Genesis 3, everything goes sour and south in the book of Genesis, it seems. Yeah, mankind certainly does multiply across the face of the earth as God designed him to do. But we see again and again as the chapters progress in Genesis, as they spread, sin spreads with them. Sin sneaks its way along in everything that they do. The proof that all men are sinful is very quite simple, according to Romans 5. The proof that you are a sinner is that you are going to die. The proof that all men are sinners are that men are going to die. Romans 5.12 actually says, So death spread to all men because all men sinned. You've heard, of course, of, the, of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Have you heard of the hall of horrors? That is Genesis 5. Everyone dies, it tells us now, because sin is in the world. Everyone. Good guys, bad guys, all of them die. And sin is not only evidenced by death's inevitability, it's also evidenced in our hearts, our morality, our bents. Matter of fact, in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw, as men progressed in the earth, wickedness progressing with them. It says, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As man spread, so sin spread. And this is the bad men, but even in the, the very best men, we see sin spread as well. Genesis shows us it sneaks with Noah as well. 
Even though he was considered very favorably in the book of Genesis, we see by the end of his life, he is a sinner just like everyone else in the book. Uh, It's in this climate of hopelessness, this under-sin condition that all men find themselves, that we actually find in the book of Genesis that God reveals his redemptive grace. From the very beginning of Genesis, as sin sneaks, so the promises of God go forward as well. From the very beginning, God is making promises of a snake crusher that will come and restore God's Eden plan for the world under the kingship of his own Messiah, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, in the very judgment of sin initially we find the first promise of the gospel given to us genesis 3 well the lord is judging the serpent and judging the man and judging the woman he says this to the serpent in verse 15 i will put enmity between you and the woman Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The gospel of God's grace also grows as the people spread. Matter of fact, in the account right before where we're at here in Genesis 11, we see a few chapters dedicated to God judging the world in a flood. It is a display of his holy wrath against sin. But you should also notice this, the flood is also a display of his grace towards his chosen people. If you're not familiar with the, the story of the flood, the, the purpose was, was not just to wipe out sinners. It was also to preserve the world for God's redemptive program. Actually, throughout the Bible, you'll see covenant after covenant, and they all build on one another. And, and the Noahic covenant, which is what comes um, right after the flood, when, when Noah sees the rainbow in the sky, the Noahic covenant is one of these instruments, one of these vehicles through which God is furthering his redemptive plan. Matter of fact, theologians refer to this covenant that God made with Noah, and consequently all of the people of the earth, uh, they refer to this covenant as a stabilizing covenant. It preserves... It it stabilizes the world for God's redemptive program. Or think about it this way. If there was no flood, there would be no world left. The world wouldn't have lasted long enough for Christ. It would have destroyed itself. All would have died in their sins had God not preserved and stabilized the world so that his redemptive program could un role in its own way now we're getting too boggled down in introduction so let's just get to our text genesis 11 this is the world after the flood this is a world cleansed washed externally of all of its extreme displays of sin that we read about in genesis 6 it is very much like a child who has been playing in the mud all afternoon and comes inside and you wash them of all the soap or of all the mud with soap. Now, they're going to get dirty again, but they're clean for at least two minutes. Now, this is exactly what the flood did. It cleansed the world, but it didn't cleanse the heart. It only slowed the spread of evil. It only restarted the spread of evil. But, as we will see this morning, it didn't take the heart of man very long to muck things up again. As we will see in in this passage, this, this story that is very familiar, we will see that sin came off the ark too. 
When Noah packed the ark full of animals, he also brought sin with him. And though the earth had a new start, it also carried with it an old heart. In Genesis 10, we have the table of nations as we we learn the names of nations and how they spread throughout the earth. It's the beginning of nations. And now, Genesis 11, we see how God spread the nations out. This morning, indeed, we will see how languages came to be, how nations came to be, how divisions came to be. But I want to focus practically and theologically on a gripping depiction of sin. This is a gripping depiction of both sin's activities and its judgments by God. So are you ready to learn about how sin packs itself into your luggage and of your life? Are you ready to learn about how this happens and and what you can do about it? That is where we are in the book of Genesis. Now, I've got a number of points for you if you are the note-taking type, but I'm going to kind of present these points to you in a slightly inductive manner. So you you can keep a blank by number one if you're that kind of person. I'm not going to give you all the points right up. I'm going to give you the points at the very end of each point. So for the first point, we're going to use this first point a little bit to set the stage. And let me read to you the first two verses of chapter 11 in Genesis. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Here we see the the people of the earth are migrating, moving around, living a nomadic lifestyle, no doubt. The word migrated actually literally can mean they, they pulled up their tent pegs. People were living this way after the flood. It almost appears as though they were searching for a home, searching for somewhere to dwell. You have there in our ESV, it says they migrated from the east. You could take it that way. You could also take the preposition attached to the noun there as just saying eastward, as the NASB or LSB takes it. And there's actual good um, reasons for taking it as simply saying they were moving towards the east. There are various times in the book of Genesis where this very same construction with this preposition and this noun carry a negative connotation. For example, in in Genesis 3.25, the same construction we have, man is driven out of the garden on the east side or toward the east, and we have this idea of him being driven away from the presence of the Lord. And then in Genesis 4.16, we see Cain runs eastward, and once again, we have this idea of him running from the presence of the Lord. And then in 13.11, the same construction again, Lot chooses the Jordan Valley and travels eastward, once again, away from the man that the Lord is blessing. So perhaps Moses, in writing this way, is trying to hint to us, these people who are migrating are moving eastward, and you remember what it means to move eastward. It means they are moving away from the presence of the Lord. They are wandering about, trying to find a home. But they are hunting in vain because they are not wandering about under the lordship of the Lord God. This is an action of departing. This is an action of separating. This is what they are doing and they of course come upon a plane this is not an aeroplane this is a flat piece of land that's surrounded by mountains very distantly it could be very comparative perhaps to your sand walking valley and this was of course a lucrative place to put down your tent pegs if you would because a a valley would be agriculturally valuable it would be a place you could grow crops And of course, Moses gives a name to this valley, this land. It is the land of Shinar. 
This is an ancient name for the land which would eventually become Babylon and include many of the cities. It would be in what we know as modern-day South Iraq today. In, in Abram's day, in Abraham's day, the king of Shinar was a superpower, and you can read all about him in 14.1. But as they travel eastward towards the land of Shinar, if you're not careful, nothing will seem to be that wrong. Matter of fact, I had to do a lot of explanation to even hint at anything being wrong already. And nothing seemingly seems so wrong in their first words that they say either. Look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Their purposes in this are not stated initially. And if you're just swooping into Genesis 11, like we are, you might miss over something very significant here, very subtle here. Two things. Notice first that they are speaking like God. Now, that might not be a problem. Mankind was made in the image of God in various ways. But this phrase, come, let us, sounds very similar to Genesis 1, 24, where the Lord God is making man. And if you're also attentive and you've been reading in Genesis 10, you'll notice the suggestion on Moses' part that they are not working alone. This is not just a community project. Everybody has the same idea. Hey, let's make a tower. They are led by someone. Now this is only hinted at, but look over to Genesis 10. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. We're introduced to this man who apparently was leading this building project. He is known to us as a mighty warrior. Matter of fact, if you're reading the whole genealogy, he kind of stands out a lot of description is given to this man, Nimrod. And a lot of study, by the way, is, has gone in to try to figure out who this man was and exactly identify him in history, and it's very difficult, and I won't bore you with all of that. But I would like to point out a few things about this description of Nimrod. First off, he is, he is emphasized as someone who is a hunter before the face of the Lord. That could be a favorable designation. Or, more likely, based on the context of Babel, you could take that preposition as a negative one. He is a hunter against the Lord. And instead of doing a massive etymology on his name, or a study in all of the legends that could be attached to Nimrod, I would submit to you, perhaps, that it's the ambiguity of his character that tells us the most about him and the most about verse 3 of Genesis 11. He is invisible behind this tower-building project. And that is what you need to see. He's subtle. He's lurking in the background. He is not up front. And that's how Moses wants to present him to you. And so, we see hints of rebellion and rage, and this actually gives us our first gripping depiction of sin from Genesis 11. I want you to see this. Notice sin's subtle beginnings. Sin's subtle beginnings in its earliest stages. The sin of Babel is invisible. 
and a little bit ambiguous. It's hinted at, but it doesn't feel so sinful, does it? It's invisibly influenced in the narrative. This, this, this sin of, come, let us take bricks and build something really cool, doesn't seem so sinful to us. We, we can't see what's lurking underneath these words or the man who is manipulating these words in the hearts of the people. And this is true of you as well. Both your heart and the insider of your heart will often appear very invisible initially. Sin will be sneaky. Sin is insidious. But remember, even under subtle activity, sin is and evil is very active underneath, isn't it? Let me just remind you of the very active evil that is in your own person, in your own flesh, in your own weakness in the body. James 1.14 says, Each person is enticed when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is painting a fishing metaphor to refer to temptation, and it's a most interesting illustration because he's essentially saying, Did you know that you are fishing for you? Or what about Galatians 5.17, where Paul warns Christians, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The natural person, the natural person's got no shot at pleasing God, Right? You won't naturally follow God. Matter of fact, this is what Romans 8, 6 says. The flesh has no power, no capacity to please God. So you should be cautious. Often in the flesh, there's hiding this subtle activity, this calculating evil that is very subtle in its beginning. Well, but maybe you're going to ask, what about Christians? Surely their condition is different, and that is true. Their condition is dramatically, radically different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation in Christ. We've been given this new disposition against sin by the Spirit. We have the ability, according to Romans 8, to kill sin and fight against sin. That maybe perhaps paints the unbeliever's condition even worse. They only have one option, sin. They may cover it up and make it look nice and and appropriate on the outside, but inwardly, their heart is driven by sin. They know how to cloak it well. But the believer, there's something very different about the believer. They actually don't have to sin. They have the ability, the strength by the Spirit because of the new birth to live the new life that Christ has given them to live. They won't do it perfectly, but by the Spirit they can. But there is an active evil in our own bodies. The world is also active in its opposition to us and can be very subtle in its activity. We had a camp speaker this last week who referred to the world as presenting a commercial to us. They're trying to convince you of the wisdom of their way of thinking and their way of life. That's what the world is constantly trying to do. They're constantly trying to win you over to their way of thinking. The world is active, even though it seems sneaky at times. And the devil certainly and his forces are active. Ephesians 6.11 tells us he schemes against us. 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion. And 1 Timothy 4.1 says demonic activity is often most focused in false teaching, right? Satan's not out there trying to get you to slip up every single day. He's got a bigger fish to fry. It's much more effective for him to get involved in the teaching and the worldview that surrounds you because then he can't 
He can do more than just influence you. He can influence the world around you. And then peer pressure kicks in. We see the world, the flesh, the devil are all very active against us. But sin can be still very sneaky and subtle in its beginning. Right? It argues to you for how innocent something looks externally. It it points out how how right something feels inwardly. It it points out how, how just something would be to do that or to do this or to not do that. Sin is subtle in its beginnings. But let's keep moving in Genesis. Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice the the sequential marker there. Then they said, Can't you just feel the drama of this? The progression of this? Just get into the story and imagine what it would have been like to be there. It's almost as if they, they, you know, they they look this way. And they look that way. And they they say to each other, did you feel any raindrops? Is it going to flood again? No, we got away with it. There is a progression from verse 3 to verse 4. They build on verse 3. Since we could do that, let's try to do something else. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that that seems to be exactly how sin works? First, sinful desire creeps in the beginning. And then, when there's no consequences, it leaps. And this is where we see our next gripping depiction of sin. Suddenly it's exposed. We see sin's serious aims. They want to build a city. In Scripture, not every city is evil. Jerusalem is a glorious city. But a city separated from God is always a figure of fortification against God. In the ancient world, by the way, in the long-ago ancient world, cities were not necessarily meant for people to live in as much as for joining the agricultural business of the time with the temple complex that would be stationed in the city. They wanted to connect these two things. Let's connect our business with our worship, and then we will get blessings from the God of our worship. And this is exactly what they're doing here, particularly when you read up on Mesopotamian history. Notice they're also building a tower in verse 4. Now, there's all sorts of towers in the Bible. There's watchtowers. But this is a Babylonian, Mesopotamian tower. It would be most likely called a ziggurat, which would be the first of many such structures in Babylonian history. Notice even how Moses refers to it in verse 4, with its top in the heavens. In ancient Mesopotamian literature, they actually wrote of these ziggurats as with a head in the heavens, the exact same phrasing as we see here. And this tower, just like the city that it was positioned in, was not meant to be a dwelling place of any kind. Matter of fact, it would be pyramid-shaped, but it would be all filled in with dirt. And on the outside, they'd either have a, a, a staircase going around, going up, or they'd have a ramp going right up to the top of the tower which would have been huge in those days, seven stories to us, but huge in those days. And and the function was simply to connect earth to heaven. They would actually make a little house on the top of such 
towers with a room in it and a table. And, and their hope was they could lure and attract the, the god of their area to go down this tower to make his way to earth. Hey, don't go over there to that rock mountain over there. Just come down this little tower. We're going to provide a little rest stop for you at the top. You can relax, refresh yourself, eat some food, enjoy yourself, and come down. Similar to how some rest stops try to lure you in with signs hours ahead of time. Hey, you can come here. You can get gas, but you can also buy all of this other cool stuff that you don't need. They're trying to lure, hoping to lure the god so that what? So that he would make his way down the tower to the base of the tower where the actual temple would be, where he would receive sacrifices and bless all of their business endeavors. And now at this verse, in verse 4, we, we find that their aims become clearer. Did you notice the two purposes they have in building this tower in verse 4? First off, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us literally be men of renown, men of name. They wanted glory. They wanted fame. They wanted everybody in the area to know this is the place where the tower is. There's lots of towers, but this is the place with the tower with its head in the heavens. Let us go to that place and do business. But then their second purpose is curious. Verse 4 also. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What is going on here? What is their purpose here? It seems as though they are purposely trying to disobey the, God, the command of God to multiply and fill the earth that we saw about in Genesis 1.28. A matter of fact, even in Genesis 9, the Lord repeats this command, this blessing to God, to the people, right? Uh, Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Genesis 9, verse 7, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. These people are choosing the the very same sin that we saw in Genesis 3. They're saying to God, I don't believe that your way is the best way. I believe that there can be a better life that is found outside of obedience to you. And their offense is truly a shocking offense because they're not necessarily rejecting God's command. Did you notice? They're rejecting God's blessing. We don't think you know how to truly make us happy. We're going to choose our way. And this is where the book of Genesis doesn't just tell you what happened. It tells you what happens. This is what happens in your life all the time. This is who you are. We sin for the same reasons. We have the same serious aims in our own hearts. Sin's serious aims. But now, in verse 5, the story shifts in perspective. We, we go from man's view, his slow creeping up the tower towards the heavens, towards God's view as he comes down to see what they are doing. Matter of fact, you could look at this as the peak of the narrative. Everything before this is mirrored by everything that comes after this. This is what you could call a chiasm. And here in verse 5, we see the center, the middle of this narrative. And let's title this section from the very beginning. The next gripping depiction of sin is this. We see, I want you to see, sin's sobering danger. 
Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, this is very fun. We have here something that uh, John Piper would call a little sovereign sarcasm. Every once in a while, the Bible needs some sovereign sarcasm to, to reveal to you your glory in comparison to God's glory. It's almost as if God is saying, oh, what's going on down there? Are, are they putting up a toothpick? I need to get a little bit closer to even see what they are. Oh, they're building a tower, I see. I didn't see it from way up there because it was so small. And notice verse 6, what God says in response to this city and this tower. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Once again, God's language seems a little bit ambiguous there, but he's suggesting something wrong, something dangerous. This is only the beginning of what they will do. What's the danger? Well, it's the same danger that we face all the time. The possibilities of technology are endless. And they can be a very positive thing in our lives. But the plain truth of it is in all of man's advancements, he always seems to advance more and more along with his advancements in his ability to do evil. For example, the 20th century, maybe one of the greatest centuries of advancement that our history has told us about. And what is this century? It is the bloodiest century. This is sin's sobering danger. Nothing is impossible for them while they are all together and of one language. Sinful desires should, therefore, never be treated as a lame duck. Take sin seriously, even in its beginning. As John Owen would say, you better be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's a sobering danger. But lastly, last gripping depiction of sin that I want you to see is sin's sovereign judgment. Verse 7. The Lord God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the build of building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Here we see sin's sovereign judgment, and this is an incredible picture. In an instant, in a snap of the finger we see all of man's industry and power and strength and schemes come crumbling down before the awesome sovereign power of our God he who made the tongue instantly makes the tongue to twist in a new and strange way and you instantly speak another language what took them mud or months to build out of mud, firing bricks, took him moments to tear down. Now let's very briefly think about application here. God probably won't show up in your backyard and see you building a tower to scrape the heavens and say, I'm going to confuse their language, and all their kids are going to be spread throughout the earth. That probably won't happen to you. It might, but it probably won't. But I think we have lots of traction here to understand our God so much better. 
Let's think about a few clear applications to all this. Number one, remember this, no sin against God can stand. God sees everything. He hears everything perfectly. He doesn't need to move closer to see what you are doing. Psalm 94 8 through 10 says this Understand, O dullest of peoples, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines nations, does he not rebuke? And remember this sin, even in its height of strength, can't outmuscle the sovereign strength of God. Verse 5. Remember, is the center of the story, God comes down. And we must remember this. God sees. God is present. God can judge in a moment. And God will come to combat the pride that sets itself against him. No sin against God can stand. A second application. It is very easy for God to disrupt and stop sin's plans. Once again, notice the ease to which God busts up the operations there at Babel. Reminds me of when I was in school in Chicago. Every year we would have this special conference at school called Founders Week. It was always in the worst time of the year. They, they, I guess, decided it would make sense to have it close to D.L. Moody's birthday, so they had it in February. But this was always the time when the worst snowstorms hit. And I always remember how a whole city, so magnificent in its industry and technology and its transportation, could be completely brought to its knees by a few little snowflakes. It is very easy for God to disrupt even today, our plans. And we see God doing this, him stopping, even reversing the progress of man set against God, even in the very lexical choices, the word choices that Moses even uses. Man says in verse 3, come, let us make bricks. This is a Hebrew word that's spelled with, in its root form, it's spelled with three um, consonants, uh, lamed, beth, nun, And then in verse 7, God says, come, let us confuse. That word confuse is a different Hebrew word, but it's spelled with the same consonants, just backwards. Nun, Beth, Lamed. Right? Man builds in his sinful pride, and God comes and tears it all down and brings it to a halt so easily. We see another application, and this is marvelous. In limiting, in dividing, in separating. What is God doing? God is actually preserving. God is actually preserving. When God judges the world like this by limiting, dividing, and spreading man, he is actually preserving you a chance for repentance. Remember, just like the Noahic covenant is stabilizing and preserving the world, we see hints of similar mercy even here. Sometimes God displays his mercy in the most unexpected forms. What would have happened if they had been allowed to continue building this tower? What would the end have been? We are not told, and we are grateful. Sometimes God's greatest judgment actually on people is to allow them to continue in sin. It is the greatest judgment he can give you to, as it says in Romans 1.24, Romans 1.26, Romans 1.28, give you over to your own desires. That's a great judgment. To stop you, to expose you in your sin is a great mercy. The rebel deserves the punishment of neglect. There's this story 
called Pinocchio. And in that story, there is this lucrative island that every little boy wants to go to. It's called Treasure Island. But as you get to the island, you realize this island is actually a judgment for brats. It gives them all the freedom in the world they could want to be enslaved. And it lures them by their sinful desires, and when it has them, it turns them into donkeys and continues the evil over and over and over and over again. See this, see this in the Tower of Babel. God's mercy is sometimes in display in the world by limiting them, by scattering them, by dividing them, by giving the human race time and space to repent. This is what Romans 2.4 is saying. God gives you mercy so that you may come to repentance. Now, th- these are three applications to everyone. But these three applications are very encouraging, very comforting, especially to the believer. The, the Christian has been changed, remember? The Christian now r- relates to sin in a new way. The, the believer doesn't want to sin like the rest of mankind. Our relationship has been changed to sin because of the power of the cross and the transformation of the new birth. There's this old quote by William Arnott. I got this from the book Killing Sin by Stuart Scott. This writer says this, The difference between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that one sins, One has sins and the other has none. But that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with his reconciled God against his hated sins. The Christian is very different from the unconverted man and these truths are blessed assurances to their life. There's a fourth application. For for the Christian, God's power against sin brings assurance of salvation. The Christian delights in the fact that their God is more powerful than sin. The Christian delights in the assurance that their God can sovereignly disrupt their plan to bring them to gracious, merciful repentance. Hebrews 12, 8-11 is a blessed assurance that when you are receiving discipline from the Lord, it actually reveals that you have a relationship with the Lord. It's a blessed thing. God sovereignly superintends history to preserve a chance for you to be saved. God's sovereign power against sin is a dear truth to us because it is always directed towards us. God's discipline is always directed towards us with the hand of mercy and grace. It is an evidence of his love. Even God's hardest disciplines in the believer's life is a full expression of the grace and the kindness and the love of God who doesn't let them be still in sin. Richard Sibbs writes in A Bruised Reed, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. For the believer, the believer can read Fabulous verses from 1 John, that glorious letter for assurance, for the assurance of the believer, and result in joy, even in sin. The believer can have assurance even when sin is found in their life because of the God that they serve. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But notice the the assurance that the believer has 
When sin is found, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When sin is exposed in your life, when sin is brought out in your life, when God puts a stop to something in your life, it is an opportunity for you to rejoice in the assurance of your salvation by responding to that expulsion or expulsion of your sin by repentance and confession. Remember, remember that trouble you are packing with you. Remember that sin that you pack with you wherever you go. What does the Christian do with this God on their side, knowing that wherever they go, they are also bringing sin with them? How do they live in a marriage? How do they live in any relationship? How do they live in a church body? Number one, they don't ignore it. They don't deny its reality. And, and number two, they, they don't become defeated by sin in their life. The, the Christian does not have to be defeated by sin in their life because, as it says in Ephesians 1.3, we have every blessing in the heavenly places given to us in Christ. This is what the believer does. Everywhere they go. This is what you need to pack also with you everywhere you go in your life because of the God that you serve. You need to also pack humility. You need to pack humility. 1 Peter 5.5 God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wherever you go, pack the humble understanding that I am going to bring troubles that are from me. That this relationship might have problems because I'm in it. And I need to deal with the, the me part of this relationship. First, I need to be humble. You should pack humility. The Christian should also pack godly zeal. 2 Corinthians 7.11 lifts several characteristics, evidences of true, true repentance, true godly grief in the Christian's life. One of these things is zeal. Another one of these items is indignation. Did, did you know? That, that God has actually given you anger to fight sin with, to hate your sin with. You need, to pack, you need to pack indignation. You need to pack godly zeal with you wherever you go. Humility and godly zeal. And another thing you need to pack everywhere you go, you need to also pack prayer with you wherever you go. Our, our Lord Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Humility, godly zeal, prayer. You also need to pack another thing, dependence. Dependence. Romans 8.13 promises this to the believer. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the, the blessed assurance that the believer has. That is what the believer must pack with them wherever they go. One last encouragement from the story of Babel. For the new creation, for the Christian who is in Christ, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, such a passage like this, Genesis 11, actually encourages us by reminding us of God's great intention towards us for good. In God's recreation of us in Christ, we are reminded we have been given great things to do. And there is no limit from our perspective on the good that God wants to produce in us. 
Yes, the evidence of sin is separation and death, but the the evidence of salvation we see is restoration, unity, and life. In Christ Jesus, God is reversing the things that happened at Babel. The gospel brings sin's reversal. It will ultimately bring world peace and unity but not like the world wants to bring it. It will bring world peace and unity under the truth of Christ Jesus and His Lordship alone. And we are the first fruits of this glorious thing that God is doing. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we read this in our prayer earlier, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Christian finds hope because in the plan of God, he is reversing the things that happened at Babel. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this moment in your word. And once again, I pray that it would humble the heart of all and sharpen us and make us effective to bring true glory to you in all that we do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.